Amen. Please be seated if you would. Little echo. Bear with us just for a moment. <laughs> what a way to start, huh? <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for this morning you've given us and the time that you've provided for us to gather together in your mighty and wonderful name to worship you and to praise you and to learn more of you. And Lord, as we learn more of you, we learn more about ourselves too. So speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Good morning. morning. Welcome. For those visiting today, welcome. For those of you that are returning, welcome back. So good to see you. Family, we're continuing on in Acts chapter 20. And this morning, uh, studying verses 29 through 38. And um, today's message is entitled Preparation for Service, you know, and as we've, we've been working through this chapter, chapter 20, and the farewell address by Paul the Apostle to the, to the elders in Ephesus, and he's teaching them what they need to hear upon his departure from them so the church will be cared for, well cared for, and well-loved. He's preparing them for the service that lies ahead. And, you know, it's important that we understand uh, what service to the Lord is and how we're to serve him. Uh, As we've seen over the last couple of weeks, Paul spent a lot of time, as the scriptures do as well, warning against false teachers and false prophets. And in this particular case, those that might come to the church at Ephesus from the outside And he says, not sparing the flock. There are those that would come into the church at Ephesus, as well as any church, and then if allowed to come into the church and they have influence, if they're allowed to have influence, their aim is to destroy it. So here we find this very, very healthy church in the city of Ephesus, and the wolves would look at that and all they see is a room full of sheep that they can now destroy with their doctrine. And any church that's healthy and in good shape will will catch the eye of wolves who may come in and try to devour the sheep. They can be very subtle, crafty, clever, while quietly attacking God's sheep. And as you know, wolves are predatory. Instinctively, they eat sheep by targeting them. So Paul's saying this is very, very serious business. They have the potential of harming a lot of sheep if they're not discovered or before they're discovered. So, you know, what Paul's warning is within leadership, it requires vigilance, working, moving, serving with eyes open. So vigilance, discernment, discernment, a gift from the Lord, a gift to size things up as they truly are based on what the Lord sees. And certainly... Courage, because sometimes it takes courage to address the issues that do come up regarding wolves. We're not to tame wolves. Wolves are wolves. We don't negotiate with them. What the requirement is that we keep them away from God's flock. We can't give them a place, not even a corner. They need to be dealt with. And Paul certainly warned of the dangers that can arise from among its own leadership 
You know, leaders that begin to teach error in attempt to draw disciples after themselves. And they might begin to distort the truth by putting their own personal views or personal spin before people are attempting to draw followers, not to Jesus, but to themselves. And we've seen that here. You know, years ago, there was a situation where um, after service, I, I witnessed a, a, a group, a small group, in the sanctuary being spoken to by someone, influencing them against that which I just had shared on spiritual gifts. Um, and of course, we believe in the spiritual gifts. But this particular person decided that he would draw a band of followers to himself. And it took a step to say, we need to talk. Which we did, and that person moved on. But that's the kind of thing that, that we must do. Is it easy? No, no, it's very difficult. It's painful. Because we don't want to see people leave, especially for those reasons. If God leads a person out, all praise, all glory to God. You know, you as God's people, you belong to him. And he directs where he would. So it happens within the body of Christ. And drawing disciples to themselves, it it speaks of something called vain ambition or vain glory. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to spend some time in Philippians 2, then we're going to be back in Acts chapter 20 towards the end. Well, Paul spoke of uh, vainglory and selfish ambition. Verse 3, here's what he said. He said, let let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, which means selfish ambition, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Vainglory. It's conceit. It means that a, a person might be thinking too highly of themselves to attract attention from others or to win the praise of people. That's self-promotion. And what a great sin it is because we should all be about promoting the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that we need to put forward. He is the one that deserves all praise and glory. But I have to ask a question, and it's a challenging question. Who is there who who passes a single day without, in some respect, desiring to put themselves out front, at least to some degree. You know, personally, I I ask this question, who has ever stood behind a pulpit, never desiring, and I've shared this with you before, never desiring a pat on the back? It happens. Who in conversation is always free from a desire to put themselves out to impress? Who does anything without a desire for some recognition? These are hard questions. And I think all of us would like to say, oh, I never do that. But if we examine our hearts, I think we'll quickly see that there's something inside of us, some secret desire that we really don't want anybody to know about to glory in ourselves. And I wonder... If all the strife and vainglory was removed from our conduct, how much would be left? What would be left? Well, Paul shares what not to do. He says nothing is to be done through vainglory or selfish ambition. And then he follows up with something that we should do. 
And here's what he said, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. So let's look at lowliness of mind first. And when you think about lowliness of mind, you realize very quickly that this is very contrary to the attitude of the world and contrary to our own selfishness because it speaks of humility. And it stands face-to-face and in the way of pride and also self-importance. And when I consider it, I wonder, how can we even attempt to conform ourselves to this command? Well, it has to be by examining ourselves according to truth. According to the Word of God. And here's why. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 tells us, For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The Word of God will show us who we are with a very thorough heart examination. You know, sometimes we think we understand and know what a person's motives are, what they're thinking or feeling. But, you know, the, the Scriptures are very clear here. It is the Word of God that is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So if that's the case, then we ought to leave all matters to the Word of God. And if you and I come to the understanding that our hearts, as the Bible tells us, they're, our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked, and who can know them? And if we look at ourselves in the abundance and the magnitude of the grace and mercy of God, and if we understand how much God has done for us and how much He has given it, and if we consider that everything that we have is a gift from heaven above, who would ever have anything to boast about? All of our boasting would be for and for the cause of Jesus Christ and all about Him. And when we think about this, if, if we consider that the wages of our sin or what we deserve for our sin is death, but Jesus saved me because he loves me. Even knowing my sin, how much differently, you know, if we examine ourselves, like, God, you've forgiven me so much and you still love me based on all of my, not based on, but in spite of all of my sin, how much differently would we look at others? You know, we see, we've seen in Acts 20.19, Paul said, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with tears. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 5.5, 5, Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. I mean, this is God's word. Be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud and gives grace to the humble. And then Paul the Apostle would write to the Ephesian church in chapter 4, verse 2, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Well, to the Philippian church, Paul would continue esteeming or considering or regarding others better than ourselves. And that can only come about in one way, and that is true humility. Through humility, looking for the good in another person. Because we all have got a lot of bad stuff in here, don't we? But to look for the good in another, and quite honestly, we can be quite susceptible rather to look for flaws, can't we? If you're anything like me, 
I'm suspect to look for flaws first. But you see, true humility says we have a real sense of our own faults. It says if we see the corruption in our own hearts, the the beam in our eye, rather than looking for the speck in someone else's, you know, if we, we examine our motives and say, well, my motives aren't right, they're kind of ugly. If we, we look at our own anger or bitterness, our faithfulness, faithlessness, excuse me, and if we consider ourselves how we are, because God shows us who we are, but he does it, family, so, so wonderfully for our personal growth and gain and godliness. And with that attitude, we realize we can only see the outward conduct and behavior of others while we look at what's in our own heart. Because God has shown us. I can see the the outward in you, but God sees what's going on in here, and that should humble me. There's only one who has any right to esteem himself greater than another. And you know who it is. It's Jesus. When he looked inside, there was no sin. There was no guile. There was nothing to defile him, not a single trace of evil. So given that, what role did Jesus take? He took the role of a servant. A foot washer. Wolves don't do that. Their interest is self. Self-satisfaction, self-promotion. But that's not what leaders and servants are to do. Well, Paul would continue in verse 4 of Philippians chapter 2. He said, let each of you... Look out not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. And not that we can't be concerned with ourselves, but, exclu- but not exclusively with ourselves. It's all part of considering one another. Considering one another. And I took a few minutes to look up the one another's in the Bible. And here's what I found. And this is a prescription, I believe, that God has given us with regard to our looking also on the things of others. In the Gospel of John, and the epistles of John, we're told nine times to love one another. Once is sufficient. We need it nine times. Galatians 5 verse 13 says, For brethren, you have been called unto liberty... Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. In other words, he's saying be at the disposal of another. Be available. That's the role that Jesus took, isn't it? In Ephesians 4.2, with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love. Forbearing means to hold up or to support one another. It means to make allowances for one another. Which is grace, isn't it? Sometimes it seems it's difficult to make allowances for one another, isn't it? You know, something happens, some word spoken, some action, and you know, oftentimes we, we do or say things we don't really mean. And if we as brothers and sisters in Christ can come to the realization that, well, I'm, I'm going to make an allowance here because... I am who I am. I'm a sinner saved by God's grace. So rather than pass judgment, what do we do? We, we, we're called to make allowances. 
Ephesians 4.32 says, And be ye kind one to another, and tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Have you been forgiven of your sin? How much of it? All of it. Then we must forgive all. When the apostles said that Jesus teach us to pray, Jesus gave them a mode, and I'm assuming we're all familiar with what Jesus said in Matthew 6.12. He said, forgive us our debts or faults as we forgive others. As we forgive others. In other words, in the same manner in which we've been forgiven, which is a lot. In Luke 11, verse 4, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us or sinned against us. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 says, Let the Lord, excuse me, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and here's another one another, admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Admonishing one another means to caution. You see a dangerous situation, we provide caution, right? To warn one another, or in another interpretation is to reprove gently. Now, sometimes our cautions and reproof are anything but gentle. But a good rule of thumb for us is to reprove or correct in the same way, in the same manner as we would like to be corrected. But sometimes I think, well... I don't want to be corrected. But you know what? The, the truth is this. You are corrected by God's Holy Spirit. And how does he correct? Well, gently. He came as a dove. He didn't come as a wolf. He came as a dove, gently. First Thessalonians 4.18, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. He has an idea of consoling one another or bearing another's burden. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also you do. Edify means to, to build up, or you know, a house builder, for example. Hebrews 3.13, But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. That word exhort there means to watch over, or to look out for, or to, to look out for each other's best interests. Hebrews 10.24, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. Similar, the word consider means it's very similar to the word exhort that we just mentioned, but in a greater sense, it means to encourage or to excite each other in our Christian walk. We need that. We need that kind of encouragement, don't we? So the one another's that we just touched on, serving, forbearing, forgiving, admonishing, Comforting, edifying, exhorting, and considering, they help us, they help describe to us our responsibility to each other as Christians. And it helps us to understand verse 4 that we just read. Look not in every, or that we're going to read, look not every man in his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Philippians 2.4 helps us to understand in practical ways. Look not on every man of his own things, but every man also on the things of others. We're called to live our lives as servants, looking out for one another, caring for one another, and on and on. Now, Paul goes on to provide the very best example to us 
an example of humility as a servant while embodying all of the one another's we just mentioned. And he says in verse 5, he said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. All the wonderful qualities we've been looking at that are observable in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is why Jesus is our greatest example. He said, let this mind be in you. It speaks of attitude. I'm talking about a good attitude, not a bad attitude. Let me say this. this is our key, the key to our joy as Christians is found in the way we think which is our attitude, and it's all about our attitude of service to him. 1 Corinthians 2.16, For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ, the understanding of Christ. Why do we therefore understand things like redemption? Well, because we have the mind of Christ. How do we understand something like forgiveness? Because we have the mind of Christ who has forgiven us. How do we understand restoration, to be restoration, restored in a relationship? Because we have been restored in a relationship with God himself through Jesus Christ, his, his son, our Lord and Savior. And how do we understand salvation? It's because we have the mind of Christ. The things that the world cannot understand, we know because of what we have been given. We've been given the Spirit of God. He's come into our lives and He's given us wisdom, understanding, and discernment. See, it's not about how smart we are or how much we have in here. It's all about who we are in Jesus Christ because He dwells in us at the new birth. And when He begins to, when He does dwell in us at the new birth, we begin to think differently, don't we? Our attitude changes. Our hearts change. In Romans 12, verse 2 says, we are being transformed by the renewing of our minds. That's what the world needs. Renewed minds in Jesus Christ, in the Word of God, motivated and moved by God's Holy Spirit. So our attitude changes, our love changes, and here's why. Because there's somebody changing us, and it's Jesus. He changes us. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, verse 26, this, this promise of God through this prophet, uh, he says, a new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And then in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul the Apostle said, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away, and he said, Behold, all things are become new. We're new in Christ. In verse 6 of Philippians, Paul begins to describe what he said, Is this mind be in you? And here's what he said, speaking of Jesus. He said, Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God? Being in the form of God describes Jesus' pre-incarnate existence. Now remember, he didn't, didn't begin his existence in a manger in Bethlehem. He's an eternal God. And, and the scriptures tell us here he did not consider to be, rob, to be robbery to be equal with God. And the idea here is that the pre-incarnate Christ already had equality with his Father. But his existence as God in heaven wasn't something he wanted to cling to. He obeyed his father. His father said, you need to go to earth. 
as fully God and fully man. And his mission was very, very well defined and designed by God. He must become the sacrificial lamb of God so that he would take away and could take away the sin of the world. And he came with a singular mission. Matthew one twenty one describes it to us. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. It means that I need a Savior. I need my sin forgiven. And that's why Jesus came. So in obedience, he, he let go of his deity in a sense. He let go of heaven to come to earth to live as a man. Was he still God? Yes, of course. But he never ceased to be sinless in his perfection. How did he do this? Well, he made himself of no reputation. You know, Paul said, esteeming others greater than themselves. Isn't that what Jesus did? Esteemed us better than himself. You know, his own brothers didn't even know he was God. Hey, he's just one of the boys, right? And later they would learn that he's more than just one of the boys. He's the son of God. Made himself of no reputation. And a true servant means he emptied himself. But he didn't become less God. And he did this by veiling his glory. Remember, Jesus would not permit anyone to glorify him as king until the, the right time, the appointed time, just before his death. And he did it by taking on himself a true and sinless human nature and voluntarily submitted to the will of his Father. And in that submission, humanity was added to his nature. Well, how did Jesus empty himself? Verse 6 who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but did this through taking the form of a servant. And the word servant is a bondservant. Now when he says being, it's a form of, being a form of God, it means in the present tense, nevertheless God. Here in addition, in the next verse tells us in verse 7, but he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant who was made in the likeness of men. He didn't empty himself of his deity or any of his attributes or his equality with God. He emptied himself into the form of a servant, not just the form of a man, but rather the most humble form of a man. And the word taking, taking on the form of a bondservant, not in exchange, but in addition. And he did this by coming in the likeness of men, in the lowest likeness of men, not as a ruler, not as a king, but as a bondservant or a bondslave. He had no rights. And he did it voluntarily. And he did it by choice in obedience to his father. And you know, I'm so challenged by verse 6. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He came to serve. He didn't cling to his equality as God. The thing that challenged me was this. How often do I cling to some sense of self-importance and fail to become a bondservant? Placing myself above some service to Jesus. And how often do I think, well, that's really not my job. That's for this person or for that person. How often do I place myself above obedience to Jesus and serving Him? I don't have time for that, Jesus. That's placing myself above Him. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. And emptying ourselves of our self-importance 
Jesus did that. And if Jesus did that, shouldn't we do that? I say yes. Because the scriptures tell us we have the mind of Christ. When we talk about bond servants or bond slaves, in the Old Testament, these bond slaves were pierced at the ear as a sign of devotion to their master. But you know what, family? We've been pierced through the heart by the love of Jesus Christ. And the scriptures tell us that his banner over us is love. So if his banner over us is love, then we must be constrained and motivated and moved by his love and our service. And it means to humble ourselves as Jesus humbled himself and take on the form of a servant, broken and poured out for others. All this being said, Jesus went a step further. In fact, he went the entire distance. Verse 8 describes to us how far he went. And being found in a fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. So here on earth, Jesus went the full distance of descent all the way from a place in heaven, a perfect place, a glorious place, a place without pain, without suffering. And he came as a man, but not just a man, but as a bondservant. Then he went all the way to Calvary to lay down his life for us. That's the greatest example of servanthood that will ever, ever exist. And as an obedient servant, we're not called to lay down our lives, but to rather die to self for the benefit and blessing of other people. You see, that's the mind of Christ. That's the heart of Christ. That's the attitude of Christ that will change our homes. That will change our neighborhoods and our streets. It'll change our workplaces. It'll change our community. It'll change our church. Paul said to the Galatian church in chapter 2, verse 20, he said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And you see, dying to self, it takes on then the characteristics of Jesus, his mind, his heart, his attitude, his selflessness. And Jesus, in dying for us, he reconciled us. And it means that the debt that we owed because of our sin, he brought to what? He brought to zero. He brought to absolute nothing. In 2 Corinthians 5.18, it says, And all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. Now listen to this. He has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation, remember, brought the debt down to zero. He's given us that very same ministry to reconcile as he did. Which means for reconciliation between me and my Father in heaven to take place, Jesus had to die. So if we, you know, you or, or me, we're at odds with someone, if that's the case, we need to exercise the ministry of reconciliation. But in order for reconciliation to take place, someone has to die to self and humble themselves as Jesus did. You know, if you as a husband or a wife are at odds, in order for reconciliation to take place, someone has to give up and die to self. This is what the scriptures are telling us. 
And if you and your children are battling it out and you desire reconciliation, someone has to die to self and take on the servant's role. And husbands, if you can't seem to love your wife as Christ loved the church, as Jesus commands, in order for reconciliation to take place, you have to die to yourself. And wives, if you have trouble submitting to your husband, and it's created disunity in the home, oneness and reconciliation will only take place through the death, your death to yourself. You see, God has had to die for us to be reconciled with him. And we're the guilty party. God is perfectly innocent, and the innocent took on the initiative. Now, we can choose to go on battling, can't we? We can keep on arguing. We can do all the finger-pointing we want. We can be blaming one another, accusing one another. And if we do that, guess what? The battle is going to rage on forever. It's going to continue. So if you want reconciliation or oneness and restoration, then if that's the case, then you must be crucified with Christ in order to live. If I lay down my way of thinking and my priorities, my desires, my wishes, my position, my stance in this battle, then I'm going, then I am dying to myself to bring about reconciliation and oneness and unity because that's what Jesus did for me. Did Jesus deserve to die? No. I deserved my death. Yet he chose to die to himself in order to bring us to oneness with the Father. He laid down his will for the Father's will that reconciliation would take place. You see, without death, there is no reconciliation. So do you want healing? Do you want restoration with a spouse, a child, a co-worker, neighbor, brother, sister? You name it. If you want that, then die to yourself. Jesus did it. We need to do it. Are you willing to say, if there's going to be reconciliation between me and someone else, then I must be the, the one other centered. We talked about the one others. I must be centered that way and take on the form of a servant. But the question is, how willing are we to do so? Are you willing to say, I'll die to my anger, I'll die to my bitterness, I'll die to my hostility in order that reconciliation will take place? And you see, if someone doesn't step up to the plate, the battle is going to go on. And we can't let the battle rage. We can't allow that to happen. And we can't allow that to happen because here, here's why. It would have been very easy for God to wash his hands clean from us and to destroy us because of our sin. But he didn't do that. The scriptures say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoso would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, God desired a reconciliation, so he initiated it. We need to initiate in order to reconcile whoever it may be that wronged us or hurt us, perhaps so deeply that we just want to say, enough is enough, and lash out. Or sometimes we want to say, we want to say things like this, you've you, you got to pay for this. You've done this to me. You're going to pay. 
But the proper response is the same response that were provided in Philippians 2, verse 8, where it says Jesus humbled himself. This is a challenging section of Scripture for me. I don't readily humble myself. But God is telling me what I need to do. He's telling us, us, he's instructing us what to do. But the question is, will you? Or you're thinking, this is just too hard. But I'm so grateful Jesus didn't say it's too difficult, too hard, too painful. So are you willing to die to self and realize that it's really not about you? It's all about what Jesus has done for you. He's laid down his life to absorb your wrath and your judgment. Are you willing to do the same? You know, this is kind of an aside from Acts chapter 20, but not really. Because because Paul is instructing these leaders in Ephesus, you need to serve the people with the right heart. And serve the Lord with the right heart. And all the while, keeping your eyes open, your ears open for what's taking place so that you can protect God's flock. So go back to um, Acts chapter 20, if you would, for the second half of this message. No, just kidding. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'd just like to read the a little more of the final instructions that Paul gave to these elders. And here's what he said. This is after he's warned them and all. He said, and now, brethren, verse 32, and I love this. He said, I commend you to God. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified or set apart. He's saying to these elders, listen, I'm entrusting your care to God. And here is the resource that you have been given for the days of difficulty. I commend you to God. And then when he would depart, he he was telling them that they need to rely completely, not on him anymore, but on God's Holy Spirit. And what else? In the word of his grace. What is the word of his grace? It's the infallible, inspired word of God. It's the Bible. And you have one, at least one. Paul said to the elders, you belong to God. He's going to care for you And you have him and you have his word. And this is what Paul left them with in its sufficiency to carry on the work at Ephesus. And you see, family, in the days of evil, and I believe that we are in the days of evil, evil abounds. The love of many is waxing colder and colder. In the days of evil, our resources, our God, of course, in the word of his grace, which is able to build us up and to give us an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. We are saved by his grace by which we become God's children and we're sanctified by God's Holy Spirit. You and I as believers, we are set apart to God and by God for what? For his purposes and for his use as servants of his. 
Well, Paul would then go on to warn the elders against covetousness within the church. And here's what he said in verses 33 and verse 34. He said, I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. What he's saying here to these elders is his motive cannot be for money in, in the calling. It's a calling. Certainly support is in order when the church is able to support, but the motivation must be first and most, most importantly to serve the Lord. And when God uses a person in another person's life to guide or to help them, listen, it can't be for money. We're often asked the question, a couple of questions like, how much do you charge for a wedding? Or what do you charge for a funeral? It's like, simple answer, nothing. Why would we charge for something God has asked us to do? Why would we put a price on a privilege to serve the Lord? Yet it's a question that's almost always asked. And I think it's the way that the world responds, you know. But no, we don't put a price on that. We can't. Or what do you charge to use the fellowship hall? It belongs to you. I mean, this is, this is God's church, and you're his people. Yeah, there's legal implications with the church and so forth, but you know what? This is your building. These are your chairs that you're sitting in. This is your carpeting that you're, you're walking on. This is your building because you're God's people. Picking up in verse 35, where Paul provides a quote from Jesus that's not included in the Gospels. He says, I have showed you all things, how that so laboring you ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You know, I think about you folks and I realize how very giving you are of your time, of your, the giftings of the Holy Spirit of God, using that which he has given you to bless one another, your finances, your, your love, your kindness, your heart for him. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive, and it's so true. There is, there's a blessing, isn't there, and a satisfaction of caring for people on God's behalf. That's why Jesus said what he did. Then he went on. It says, and when he had thus spoken, in other words, he shared what he needed to share. When he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. What a heart. He prayed with them all, and they all wept sore, in other words, sorely, and they fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. They loved him. And he loved them with the love of Christ. And love begets love, you know that. And sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more. And they accompanied him unto the ship. And they said their goodbyes to him. And I'm sure it was a very, very difficult day for them for a couple of reasons. Number one, they wouldn't see him anymore. 
And number two, Paul was such an incredible servant, an incredible teacher, taught them, prepared them. And now he said, listen, you're on your own. But you're really not on your own. I commend you to God in the word of his grace. So I want to just summarize some of his, his message to these elders. In verse 19, he said, serving the Lord with all humility of mind. We spent a lot of time talking about humility today. And he described himself as serving the Lord, serving the Lord. And we serve the Lord by serving one another with all humility of mind. How important that is. In verse 20, it says that he kept nothing back that was profitable. He kept nothing back that was good for them. He continued to feed them and instruct them. And yes, and to correct them too, for correction is good also, isn't it? No, it's not. Yes, it is. <laughs> Correction is good, and it's very, very necessary. And then in verse 23, he said, but bonds and afflictions. You know, he was continuing on his journey from city to city, and it says here that bonds and afflictions await him. Well, there's something to look forward to. City A, bonds and afflictions. City B, bonds and afflictions. City C, some blom- bombs. <laughs> bonds and afflictions, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> maybe who knows but you know what he said in spite of all of that he said none of these things move me none of those things can knock me off course why because he knew he must share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and nothing would hold him back And I'm sure when he said this, it was in the back of his mind, or maybe in the forefront of his mind, how the scriptures say that Jesus' face was set as flint on Jerusalem, where he would be crucified. Nothing stood in Jesus' way. Not the temptation of the devil, not people that try to discourage him, not family who try to discourage him. Nothing stood in the way of accomplishing that which his father asked him to do. And that is to reconcile people like you and I to himself. And then, of course, the warnings he gave. Take heed to yourselves first, he said. Take heed to yourselves first. Your relationship with Jesus, how you walk with Jesus, how you respond, how you love. Take heed to yourselves first. And he said, feed the flock. I mean, these are great instructions for these elders. Feed the flock of God that he has purchased with his own shed blood. Again, this all belongs to Jesus. And if it all belongs to Jesus, then we we ought to honor him with everything that we do as we serve him. Then, of course, he went on to say his goodbyes. I'm so grateful that the Holy Spirit of God has chosen to put this section in Acts chapter 20 here for us. And it is for us. It's for sure. It's for certainly, it's for us as leaders, but it's for each of us because we all have a leadership role in some area of our lives, don't we? He's instructing them how to conduct themselves to be a blessing to others and how to conduct themselves to bring honor and glory to God. And I say to this letter, Amen.
Lord, write this on our hearts. Write these words on our hearts that we might best serve you, that we might best love one another, best serve your people. And give us ears to hear what the Spirit of God would speak to us. Give us discerning spirits so that we can identify the things that are not of you. And we can identify the things that are of you. And Lord, help us to humble ourselves in your sight, knowing that you're going to lift us up. You're going to care for us. And I thank you, Father, that we've been commended to you and to the word of your grace, which is able to build us up. And you have provided for us an inheritance among all them that are sanctified, all those that are set apart. We thank you for that, Father. And Lord, if there's any here in this this building today, or perhaps listening later, that haven't yet made that decision for you, that today would be the day when those knees are bowed before you, those tongues confess that you are the Lord to the glory of God, and would be very quick to reconcile with you, Father, by confession of sin, and trusting in you by faith that you are the Son of God who came to lay your life down on a cross, suffer a brutal death, and pour out your blood that we might be forgiven of sin. If there's any here today that would like to make that decision for Christ, then please pray. Father, I come to you and confess my sin to you. I know that I haven't had a relationship with you. I've been separated from you. But I'm so grateful you never separated yourself from me. You've loved me continually. And I come to you in response to your love and say to you, Father, I love you and I love your son and I ask you to save me. I believe in the finished work of the cross in the death and burial and the resurrection of Jesus. And I bring my heart to you right now and invite you in. Be the Lord of my life. Be my Savior. Be my King. Be my Master. And help me. You're making changes in me right now as I pray. Continue the work that you've begun because you are faithful to complete it. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.